Father, we come to these moments and we need you to generously make your spirit available to us in this place, in these moments. To lead us into all truth and to convict us of sin and of judgment. Since your ministry, Holy Spirit, and we're asking you to to do that in our midst. I pray, God, that as we engage with this text and we think about the nature of judgment and of hell, that you would help us to interact with your heart and your mind truly and to be, to be right-sized, to be stunned by your awe and to simultaneously see and experience your love in the midst of the holy awe. So would you come and do that for us? And just before we close in prayer, would you, our prayer, would you please pray for me? Just right here in this moment of prayer, would you pray that God would clothe me with power to preach this word clearly to you? So we offer these prayers in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Perhaps the single Christian doctrine that has generated more unrest and doubt than any other for folks is the discussion around hell and around judgment. And as you may know, if you've been with us, we have started a series last week that we're continuing this week called Skeptics Welcome, trying to engage the hard questions because Those of you in the room who are skeptical friends, not yet Christians, but journeying along with us, you are VIPs in this space, and we want to take your questions really seriously. I want you to hear us consistently saying and showing that you have in the church an honest conversation partner, and we want to keep that conversation going. To the Christians in the room, I want you to know that if you come with some of these doubts and struggles, that this is a safe place to name those and to wrestle with them and to ask the scriptures, what do they have to say in response to these questions? Um, And I hope that for my brothers and sisters in the room, that this continues to equip you to boldly and clearly carry your faith out into the world, knowing that God speaks to these challenging issues. And this morning, as we engage with this question around God's judgment and the way that it works, I just want to, at the outset, um, give credit where credit is due. I've been interacting with the thought of three different people pretty heavily, and so I'm going to footnote them on the front end so that you know that I'm indebted to their thought, and because it'll be easier that way than trying to draw all the lines where they've influenced me throughout. Uh, One is a man named John Blanchard. He wrote a book, Whatever Happened to Hell? It's a comprehensive view of what the scriptures have to say and the way that it's been viewed throughout history and culturally. Uh, Tim Keller's book, Reason for God, which is uh, our gift at the Next Steps table if you're a newcomer, it has a chapter that's really excellent on this topic. And uh, there's a book called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin that is excellent and has a chapter on this topic as well. So I just want to go ahead and, and give credit where credit is due. They've influenced my thought a great deal. The thesis that I would put before you this morning that I think is going to be borne out by Jesus' teaching that we're going to explore together is this. Hell is a balancing of the divine scales of justice ultimately motivated by love. 
that hell judgment is a balancing of the cosmic scales of justice. That all that occurs in this world will be made right in the next world and that everything that is out of whack will be brought into alignment. That God is a God of judgment and justice because he is committed to that end. And his commitment to that end is rooted in, it actually doesn't undercut or render powerless or untrue, but it actually upholds his love. And so I think as we explore Jesus's words together, he will lead us into that understanding. So let's see if we can pay attention. First, what does it mean that hell is a balancing of the scales of justice? Look back at verses 19 through 25 that were just read for me. I want us to pay attention to the the couple of characters that we're going to be introduced to and the way that what happens in the afterlife is directly related to the decisions and the ways that their life took shape in this life. Um, Let's dig in. It says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day and at his gate, let me just pause real quickly. We just got several really key, we're sketching out very quickly who this rich man is. He wears purple and fine linen, so he's clothed in very expensive clothing. He feasts sumptuously daily. So his table is always full of really rich, delicious foods. And then when it says that the, the poor man was laid at his gate, that word in the Greek is actually a word that is most typically used of the gates around royal palaces. It's also referenced at times to the gate around the temple, never of a private home. So this is a statement of how grand his residence is. This guy is very wealthy. Incidentally, so much so that he doesn't receive a name in this story other than the rich man, which I think in part is a nod as Jesus is teaching to the very nature of his journey and how he's arrived where he is. It has come to mark his very identity. It has been his pursuit and his greatest affection. And we'll see it play out even in the way he interacts. There was... There was laid a poor man named Lazarus there at his gate. He was covered with sores and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we've got this very poor man that is actually laid at the gate. That is a verb meaning that someone else is doing the action. So he's probably immobile, maybe paralyzed. And as a result, he's dragged out there. He's laid by the gate daily. He's got sores all over his body and one other piece of evidence that he is immobilized in some ways that he can't even shoo the dogs away when they come to lick his sores. He's just longing for the scraps from the rich man's table. This is a man who has been broken by the realities of living in a harsh world east of Eden. We don't know all that got him there, but we know that he has tasted the brokenness of a sinful world. He feels it in his bones. And it says, the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus was at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received, you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. An interesting note about this text is that uh, it is 
frequently referred to as a parable, and it very well may be, but it's unique if it is a parable and that it's the only one where one of the characters gets a proper name. Uh, that he's talking about Lazarus. And so some scholars even say it's, it's not strictly a parable. It's actually just a story. It's a narrative that Jesus is offering. Whatever it is, it's one of his most extended teachings about the nature of judgment. And the, the reality that quickly exposes itself that we see in this text is that divine judgment in the afterlife is directly related to what is occurring in this world. Did you hear it in verse 25? After painting the picture of this rich man who is nameless other than his identity and his wealth and Lazarus, we then see them both in the afterlife and Father Abraham's commentary is this. One is being comforted and one is in anguish and it's because of what they experienced in this world, because of who they were and what they pursued and what they experienced. It's, it's an interesting and important note at the outset of engaging with this topic that Islamic thought and Buddhist thought and Taoist thought as well as our, our friends in Hinduism, they all have a concept of some sort of divine judgment or hell that is a part of their system of understanding. The great religions of history have affirmed judgment in part, I believe, because we as human beings throughout history have been wrestling, really honestly wrestling with do the decisions that we make in this life matter? It's a question of human dignity and value and worth to wrestle with and honestly ask do the things that happen in the secret places, the ways that human beings oppress and mistreat and work violence on one another, are those things seen and do they matter? And what Jesus is saying in this text is that in fact they do. And in so saying, it's just important to note that he's, he's actually broadly, very broadly in agreement with the great world religions that, that religion throughout time has said there has to be something more. And I think... I think in part because of this question, it, it, it raises this question of what is the alternative? That, that the alternative is a world where there are great atrocities and sadnesses, there's significant oppression and mistreatment of human being between human being. And, and what we're left to wrestle with if there isn't divine judgment is that if God is in fact there, he's shrugging in the face of evil. He is not balancing the scales. He is just allowing those things to be covered over in the sands of time. And those moments of heartache and struggle are forgotten. But Jesus is saying otherwise. He is affirming human dignity and value and worth such that even the man whose sores are being licked, who cannot defend himself or feed himself, God sees him and values him and says in the next life, these broken realities will be made right. The alternative uh, that, that many want to propose today, the alternative that, that God is a God of nonviolence and that's in, in fact why we should be a people of nonviolence, that God will never extend the hand of judgment and for that reason, neither should we. It's even been argued that Christians who affirm the reality of hell are going to be more likely to dehumanize others. The argument runs that if, if a Christian believes that they have been saved by the work of Jesus and they are a child or a, a son or a daughter of God, that they will be tempted to look down on those who are seemingly moving towards hell and they will think less of them. 
that it will actually lead to greater atrocities and mistreatment of people. But interestingly, Miroslav Volf, he's a Croatian theologian at Yale Divinity, has engaged with this thought some. He lived through great unrest in the Balkans. He has seen tremendous atrocities worked against human beings. And, and he, he wrote in response to this line of argumentation. I, I just want us to see if we can follow his train of thought here. He says this, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be very unpopular with many in the West. But it takes a quiet suburban home for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence would result from the belief in God's refusal to judge. It's in a sun-scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent where it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. Do you follow what he's saying? He's saying it's only people who've lived in immense comfort and pleasure and wealth that can look at the divine justice of God and be offended. He says it's people who live in immense oppression, who are seeing real heartache and struggle. He says, if you go to a sun-scorched land that's soaked in the blood of the innocent and you get down and say, listen, God is all and only love and he's not gonna judge anyone. For that person, that is not good news, that's devastating news. They will, if he doesn't see this and he's not gonna do something about this, then he certainly is not a God worthy to worship. Do you follow deep down in the human heart? At some level, what we have to admit is this, we long for someone to see and to make it right. It's in us to long for justice. And one day, what Jesus is saying is this, that God feels and understands the pain of the lowliest and the most mistreated. And he is going to remember and he is going to make things right. Hell is a balancing of the scales. My family and I got to travel uh, with some friends with the halls over spring break to Honduras on a mission trip. We heard some of the stories of people living in immense poverty, children that was, it was retold to us that some of these children are very likely being abused with regularity and that there is no recourse with the police, the government. They live out in this valley. They're kind of abandoned. They live in these little families. One of them was living in, a, in an abandoned brick oven where they used to burn bricks. They were... And it, my wife and I that night were laying awake and as we were talking about going, so these children are being sexually abused night after night in an unseen place where the police are never gonna be able to come and do anything. There's never gonna be a trial. These people are never gonna be held accountable. And I gotta tell you, if God doesn't see those kids and he's not gonna do something about that, I don't know that we need to be singing to him. We need a God of justice. We need a God who fights for the one that is laying at the gate and can't even shoo the dogs away. And what Jesus is saying 
is this is the sort of God we serve. A God who will certainly balance the scales of justice. The second note that we have to make is this. This is uncomfortable. But we have to make this note because the beauty and the power, the reality of who God is, is actually hidden away in this note that we're tempted to sidestep. But the second reality is this, that this balancing of the divine scales of justice is devastating in nature. It's devastating. Did you hear it in this text in verse 23 and 24? It says this man is in Hades being in torment. He's in torment. He lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in the flame. He describes himself as in torment and in anguish. Interestingly, do you, do you see how he's not actually asking to be forgiven. He's not repenting. He's actually just appealing to Abraham to still send Lazarus as if he's still his servant boy. Still maintaining his, his sense of identity from that place of torment and anguish. He's saying, Abraham, just, just send Lazarus to wait on me hand and foot. Send a little water to, to relieve me. But, but what we see is that this, this nameless man is in the midst of torment and anguish and flames. The torment is physical. It's a word that it can even be used in the Greek of like a torture contraption. So he feels it in his flesh and his bone. He is coming undone. That other word that's used, the anguish, it's, it's only used two times in the New Testament where it's not in reference to hell or eternal judgment. So it's Jesus is teaching and he's using it frequently of judgment, but it's used two other times. One, when Mary and Joseph lose Jesus when he's a child and they think they've lost their son, they feel this thing. And the other time is Paul when he's speaking to the elders that he served alongside in Ephesus and he says, you're never gonna see my face again because he knows he's about to die. Do you hear it? This anguish is not physical, it's emotional and it's relational. It's this realization that my meaningful connection with those that I've loved has been stripped from me. It's this loneliness and struggle endlessly. The fire that is described, some would argue is literal and that's possible. It is possible, I don't know. It, it's the most consistent description of hell throughout the New Testament. Fire is used most consistently, but it may in fact be metaphorical. If it's metaphorical, it's not because it's, it's less painful. It just means that it's, it's more devastating. In essence, I think what it's getting at is the, the disintegration of the human being. This is the way that Tim Keller describes it. He says, if you were to throw a, a log on a fire and watch it come apart as fire does its work, the idea is that this rich man has come to the terminal point of all of his desires in his living days. That what he wanted was things that, that rendered him subhuman. He thought if I could just gather wealth and sumptuous food and rich clothing, that's what life is about. But the truth is, friend, as long as you live your life for anything less than the eternal, you are moving towards a subhuman reality. And the idea is that the judgment is the, the progression of what has already been chosen at a heart level. That this is the, the fires of hell is that we are being 
We are being consigned to the things that we ourselves have been choosing. You see, this this isn't all that Jesus says. Jesus, in fact, about 10% of Jesus' teaching is on hell and judgment. A full 10%. He talked about this frequently. And that's important to note because we're tempted at times to think there's this Old Testament angry God with a stern look on his face that is just quick to consign people to judgment. But that Jesus, Jesus is loving and tender and compassionate. And the truth is that that dichotomy doesn't exist in the scriptures themselves. That Jesus is in fact loving and compassionate and kind. And he is the single person in the whole of the scriptures that talks more about hell than anyone else. A full 10% of his teaching, he touches on these things. And there's a few notes that we need to make to really feel the weight of what it is that he's teaching about. He frequently calls it the outer darkness. So this, this space of divine judgment is marked by darkness. He says that it's marked by weeping. It means there's tremendous grief there. It says there will be gnashing of teeth. This is the posture of anger. Oh. And I think anger starts to swallow the whole. This is what I mean that some of us, if we're honest, it's, we can feel the hints of this already in our bones. But, but the idea is that it takes over, that it's anger in every direction. Anger at other people as we feel like a victim. They've all mistreated me. And anger at myself for the bad decisions I made. And anger at God because he didn't give me enough information. Which you even get the hint in this text as he, as he tells Abraham, you need to send someone to my brothers. They don't, they don't have enough information. People in the world don't know. You see, anger swallows the whole in this place. The worm, Jesus says in other places, eats without end, the undying worm. The great Puritan thinkers would say that this is the conscience gnawing away at us. And the word that Jesus uses more than any other to describe future judgment is a word, Gehenna. And Gehenna was actually a physical location just outside of Jerusalem where all of the trash and the refuse of the city was put and it was burned there. And so this was a physical place that people saw and they smelled and they drew back from. It was also a place where child sacrifice was practiced over the years. It was a place of, that smelled awful where people would shield their eyes and their noses and that they would see this place where everything that was no longer desired was cast off and burned perpetually. And Jesus, when he was teaching people in and around Jerusalem would say, you know, Gehenna, judgment is like that. Do you hear it? The balancing of the scales of justice is devastating, which may may cause the question, why? Like, why so intense? Can't we just dial it down a little bit, Jesus? And I think it's helpful for us to consider that the nature of judgment isn't just the act, but it's who the act is worked against. Some of you have maybe heard this example. I've used it before, but I think it's pertinent that, Ali, if after service you were to lie to me about something, if you were to tell me a lie, the real impact would be that for he and I, there would be a breach of trust. Our relationship would take a few steps back, potentially. But beyond that, there's no standard repercussion, right? There's no, there's no punishment. But if you were to lie to a Supreme Court justice after being sworn in, that could carry with it five years in a federal prison. Now, why? 
It's the exact same act. What's the difference? It's the glory of the court that has been offended. What we need to recognize is this, that our lives are being played out in the presence of a holy God whose court is eternally glorious. And Jesus is not underselling the intensity of the judgment because he knows and he's trying to help people establish in their minds and their hearts, listen, this is an eternal glorious court that will be satisfied. And it's actually his love that is causing him to time and time and time again to tell people the truth. Listen, it's real. And your offenses are not just against your brother or your friend or your spouse. The things that you smuggle around inside of you, the hell that is smoldering already in your bones. You see, hell is not just a place where someday people will go. It is something that we carry around in us. The fires have already been lit and they're smoldering. And what Jesus is saying is pay attention. It wants all of you. Your pursuit of wealth and money and comfort, your anger and your lies and your violence and the things that you smuggle around, it wants you and the fires are already smoldering. You see, we think this is, is maybe too intense and we go, well, okay, okay, maybe that judgment is just for like really bad people, whoever we put in that category, Adolf Hitler, Vladimir Putin, people that work real evil in the world, that's what they deserve. But when we realize that it is playing out against this court, the judgment is real. I will make this note in Luke 10, Matthew 11, and a few other places, Jesus makes it clear that there will be measures of judgment. It's not one size fits all. He says it will be more bearable for some on that day than others based off of what was revealed to them, which truth they were stewarding. But the judgment across the board is devastating because of the glory of the court. In part, it's devastating because of the beauty of the promises as well. Just follow me real briefly on this. Revelation 21 and verse three, a beautiful promise is made to us if we are in Jesus, that one day every tear will be wiped from our eyes. All sadness will be over. All of the atrocity, all of the mistreatment, all of it will be done. And there's part of us, there's, there's parts of us that just long for that and go, yes, God, make it true. But then when we pause and consider what is required to deliver on that promise, the great physician with the scalpel is not just cutting the surface. He has to cut all the way down. He isn't just, he isn't just dealing with Hitler. He has to deal with every instance of anger and envy and malice and gossip and everything else that leads to the tears and the brokenness in our world, if he's going to deliver on this promise, his judgment has to cut all the way down to the bottom. The balancing of the scales of justice is devastating. But listen, it's motivated by love. It's motivated by love. That as, as God is dealing with us. Even in this text, we see it by the conclusion. And, and uh, in verses 27 to 31, we see that this man is beginning, to, is beginning to dawn on him. He's worried about his brothers. And he says, I beg you, Father, send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they might be warned, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The end of this text is about the nature of the warning. And what this man is longing for, he's like, oh, that they would be warned. And in essence, what Jesus is saying is, as they have, the text is clear. God has revealed himself to the world. And then there's this haunting foreshadowing at the conclusion where he's saying, and even if someone were to raise from the dead, they're still not gonna listen to him. As we pay attention to this fact that Jesus, the one that is remembered historically and still today, culturally, people recognize that he was a man of love and compassion and kindness, yet he's speaking frequently about the nature of judgment. What we need to hear in him telling us the honest truth of divine judgment is the heartbeat and the love of God. We need to see how it is that God is responding. It reminds me of this quote from C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, where he says this, in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What is it that you're asking God to do? To wipe away your past sin at all cost and to give you a fresh start, soothing every difficulty and offering miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive, to forgive them? They don't want to be forgiven. To leave them alone? Ah, I'm afraid that is exactly what he is doing. There are two kinds of people, says Lewis, in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. Lewis argues throughout this work, in essence, that the, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. That those who have become committed to their lesser loves are saying, no, I want this, and I'm committed to this, and, and here is the heart of God. Listen, friend, if God is in fact arms crossed, angry faced, casting great numbers into hell without any other sort of response or engagement, then I'm with you. I am concerned and I'm not certain that he is a God of love if that's who he is. But listen, that's not how the scriptures portray him. Here is Jesus teaching time and again. He says at the end of the story in Revelation, he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you will open the door, I will come in and be with you. I will dine with you. I get the sense that throughout his ministry, it's like he's just walking around loving people and tending to them, meeting people in their shame down in the dirt and scooping them up. And it's all like a gentle knocking. Like, let me in. I've come for you. Let me in. And I get the sense that about 10% of the time as he's reading the hardness of the hearts of his people, he's knocking a little bit louder. I've allowed myself this week to, to go to some uncomfortable places. For instance, imagining if the doors are locked and the fire is on the inside, like imagining what would it be like if my child was in a house that was on fire? Like the behold, I stand at the door and knock would sound different. I'd be going, please, Listen. Listen, I am not cold-hearted towards you. I don't desire that any should perish. I've come for you and I'm knocking and I'm calling and I'm saying, if you will open the door, I will come into you. And he doesn't just knock and he doesn't just teach. The way that we know, the way that we know 
that the realities of judgment and hell are rooted in his love, not primarily his coldness of heart, is ultimately what we are celebrating together this week, Holy Week, the passion of Jesus. That he didn't just knock outside the door, but he came in and he experienced torment and anguish, physical pain on the cross, physical pain in being whipped and beaten and stretched out and crucified. Anguish like none other, but it's not just the the torment of physical pain, but it's the anguish of the relational devastation that when he looks to the skies and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The closest relationship in the history of all that has ever existed is in that moment stripped away in a way that we can never explain. He is willing to pull hell into his soul. And I don't know what it means to step out of time. I don't know how time works when you step out of it. But as he breathes his last and steps out of time as we know it, experiencing a year like a day, a thousand years like a day and a day like a thousand years, what I know is that he died under the wrath of God and he absorbed it. Listen, this God is not cold towards judgment. The reason he was willing to go to these links and the reason we are going to celebrate this week We're going to come sober on Friday to celebrate Good Friday and we're going to come celebratory on Sunday morning to to rejoice in resurrection is because he has loved us to death and back. When God is warning us about judgment, it is not cold and stern-faced and from a distance. It is from one who is willing to step into it out of affection for you. It's at the cross of Jesus, as the great thinkers used to say, that the wrath and the mercy of God kiss. And we see in him a character like no other. You are going to balance the scales of justice. And you have made a way home for sinners. Who is like you, oh God? Hell is a divine balancing of the scales of justice motivated by love. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, who is like you? Who has loved us like you've loved us? Who is brave and courageous and bold and faithful like you? You are the hero and the champion of humanity. We worship you. I pray for my friends in this room that have yet to repent of their sins and place whole life trust in you. And I pray that now, by the power of the Spirit, that they would, they would see you as beautiful and believable and they would invite you in as you stand and you knock. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters that we together as a family, that we would rightly enthrone you that we would trust your word over uh, our own ability to reason and think it all out, that we would trust you and that we would follow you and that we would celebrate you. You are certainly worthy of it. So God, we bless you. We thank you for these moments together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.